Hello and welcome to the Try Talking Sport podcast hosted by me, Joanne Murphy. Whether you are an athlete, adventurer, endurance enthusiast or simply have an interest in sport, you have come to the right place for inspiration, encouragement, motivation and as always, a little bit of entertainment. It's been a busy two weeks since the last episode of the podcast. I'm still riding my bike as much as I can in preparation for the Ballon Robe Ultra, which is just over one month away. Ah! I took a rest week last week and it messed with my head and my motivation to train, but I gave myself a swift kick up the arse and a good talking to, and I am rearing to go again this week. I am loving my new gravel bike, which has now been officially named Axel. Congratulations, Michael Halles, who wins a 25 euro voucher for Mary Bikes as the winner of our social media bike naming competition. I had a quick trip to Westport at the weekend to take part in the Cycling Connacht Women's Gravel Spin. And boy, oh boy, what a day we had. The weather threw the kitchen sink at us. Howling wind, rain, hailstones, blue skies, sunshine and even more wind. But you know what? I absolutely loved it. There was a great crew and we enjoyed a variety of terrains across the spin. Huge thanks to Cycling Connacht and Westport Covey Wheelers for hosting the event. It was lots and lots of fun. Next up, it's the Galway Bay Cycling Club Bog Trials this Saturday and then the Newport Rocky Mountain High Enduro-style gravel race at the end of this month for a bit more gravel and lots more crack. Speaking of crack and cycling, we are still going strong with our weekly Monday night team or WB Zwift Spin with Park Tri. This week, we had 115 riders enjoy some cycling and fun on the virtual tarmac. It really is a great spin to flush out the legs after a busy weekend on the bike or to prime the legs for some training later in the week. If you are new to Zwift, be sure to check it out and also check out Emma Porter's article on the website, which has some top tips for training and racing on Zwift to maximise your enjoyment and performance whilst using the training platform. Before we get into this week's episode, a big shout out must go to Russell Williams from Wales, who, inspired by our recent guest from Cork, Mark Cody, completed a 24-hour triathlon last weekend, swimming, biking and running his way to the finish of this great challenge in support of three worthy causes. Well done, Russell. There's some big news coming from Tritalky Sport HQ over the next week or so, so stay tuned to our socials and sign up to the e-zine to be kept in the loop on what's happening. Hashtag excited. This week on the podcast, one of Ireland's most successful and decorated endurance runners joins me on the show to chat about his sporting success. Ian Keith recently won the winter edition of the Spine Race in the UK for the third time. The 53-year-old crossed the finish line after a superb battle across the 260-mile race on the Pennine Way in a time of 3 days, 20 hours and 40.5 minutes. No stranger to winning at this event, he also holds the course record for the summer edition of the Spine Race, which is 77-34-52. Other accolades held by Ian include being crowned the 24-hour and 6-day Irish running champion, as well as placing 5th in the World 24-hour running championships. He has also finished 4th in the European Championships. In May 2017, he set a world record by running the entire length of Ireland, 555 kilometres from Mizzenhead to Malinhead in three days, three hours and 47 minutes, taking 12 hours off the previous record held for this feat. From mountain running to adventure racing, marathons to multi-day endurance running events, Ian Keith has firmly placed himself as a name synonymous with success in endurance sport and one to be reckoned with. When you stand on the start line up against Ian, it's not just his fitness, running and endurance ability that you are battling. You are racing against an athlete who tactically and strategically is one of the sharpest on the circuit. His mental resilience, preparation and attention to detail coupled with his ability to suffer make him the strong and successful athlete he is today. This is another great episode of the podcast packed full of insight with a glimpse into what it takes to go to battle on some of the toughest running races in the world 
and come out on top. Enjoy the show. Ian, Keith, thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's great to have a fellow Corkonian on the podcast with me today. But you know what? I actually thought you were from Dublin. How silly am I? <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> it just shows how long I've been living up here, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and you clearly, like myself, have lost the Cork accent. Uh, we could have lots of fun on the podcast today and talk like this for the next hour or so. And people will be chilling right, girl. Straight away, boy. Like, how are you getting on, Ian? Huh? What's the story like? Yeah, you can't put uh, subtitles on an audio uh, podcast, so we'd, we'd have a problem with that for sure. <laughs> we would. And uh, for anybody who wants to get a real sense of a Cork accent, just log on to Sneaky Shorts. It is lots of fun. Have you ever watched those, Ian? Uh, once or twice, yeah. yeah they <laughs> they, they do the good. rounds all right. <laughs> I'm delighted to have you on the show. And we're going to get the very first most important question out of the way to begin with. What's the story with the spelling of your name and the pronunciation of your name? Because you spell it E-O-I-N, but you pronounce it Ian. Uh, it's pretty simple. I, w- I was born in London and that's all perfectly legal over there. I think it's the normal way of doing it. So uh, I blame my parents for that one. Uh, and I moved back to, to Ireland when I was five. And I think uh, everyone now knows the mantra. It's spelled Owen, but pronounced Ian. Uh, so I think every class I was in from primary school to, to university can say that in unison. <laughs> Does it get you into trouble or is it a good thing to have the pronunciation different to the spelling of what we would be used to? Well, luckily, I don't mind the slightest if people get it wrong because, uh, in fact, I expect it. So uh, it can be useful sometimes because if someone comes to me, oh, and I know I don't know them that well and therefore I don't need to remember their name because I'm actually pretty terrible. Or I can remember faces that I can remember names, but I don't necessarily can knit the two together. So that's one of my get out clauses to not panic. <laughs> it's fun because <laughs> the We'll move straight into what we want to talk about today, and that is your life in sport and the achievements you have had some of the amazing adventures and expeditions you have been on. The most recent of that was the Spine Race, which was in the UK there just a couple of weeks ago, which you won for the third time at the winter edition of the event. Absolutely incredible. For the listeners who don't know what the Spine Race is, tell me what it is and why you would actually just sign up to do it. Not once, not twice, not three times, but even more times than that. Yeah, I think I've done the winter one seven times now. Uh, So it's pretty simple to describe. It's the length of the Pennine Way. um, And the Pennine Way is the oldest trail in England. And it's about 430 kilometers or so. The interesting bit is that they have it in the the second weekend of January. And that's deliberately to make it really, really hard because... uh, Winter conditions going up uh, the, the middle of England, and it's called a spine because it goes up the middle of England, sort of between Sheffield and Manchester is where it starts in the village called Edale, and it goes over the Scottish border into a small uh, village there called Kirkyethan. So in the middle of winter, you just don't know what the weather is going to throw at you. But one thing is for sure, it's going to be bad because uh, there's, there's no upsides, even when the weather is good. It has a downside. So this year we probably got the best weather ever in terms of we had one blue skies and sunshine day, which is a miracle. But the problem when it warms up a bit is then uh, the ground is no longer frozen. So all the bogs become really, really boggy and all the mud becomes really, really muddy and it's actually slower 
to run when the weather is good compared to when it's frozen because it's actually relatively easy to run across frozen ground as long as you don't slip and break a neck. <laughs> but there's always something. And quite often the, the races get named after the year's weather. So the first time I did it was the windy year because the winds were so strong that literally uh, at one point I couldn't uh, walk. I had to crawl along on my hands and knees because the wind speeds were so strong at one point on a ridge. And the race had to be stopped twice because of the level of danger of the winds. And then you get the wet years. Um, the last time I did it, we were battered by Storm Brendan, which was another new one, an actual name, Storm, doing its best to take us out. And uh, I remember going into what was uh, the highest pub in England, the Tan Hill Inn, and finding John Kelly, who's the last person who's finished the Barclay Marathons, in there. And he was getting, you know, changing into every piece of gear he had. And I'd gone in to do exactly the same. And I had that conversation with John. I said, you know, yeah, John, I find it hard as well. I, in all my spine races, that's the worst weather I ever encountered. Because it was you know, the, the wind and the rain, combination of wind and rain is pretty phenomenal. So, and then you get snowy years. Uh, I know uh, some years, some of the back markets have to deal with quite deep uh, snow drifts and post holding their way through snows across the, the last mountain range. So the, there's always something. And it's usually a combination of things. And, and even in the summer race this year, because there's a summer version, someone had to be rescued with hypothermia. So, it, it, you know, you just never know what's going to happen. Before we go on to um, the why, um how would you describe 2022 as a year if you've had the wet year, the windy year and the cold year? What was 2022? It was a relatively benign year, actually, for the full spine because we actually got quite nice weather. As I say, we had, one, we had one day, which was actually the whole day pretty much, was windless almost and blue skies and sunshine. And the, way, the weather was only uh, a bit iffy when we passed over the highest point in the race, uh, Cross Fell. Which is the uh, the it has a wind which is the only named wind in the UK because uh, it's there so often and so constantly and it's uh, it does cool things down and that's where I had all my gear on just crossing that section but that yeah most of the race the weather was benign but as I say you don't get any freebies in the spine that just made sure that uh, I was ankle deep in muck for quite a lot of it. <laughs> what sort of um, distance is it in? Four hundred thirty kilometers or so there thereabouts generally and you did it in three days 20 hours and 40.5 minutes is that right uh, that, that sounds about right yeah 92 hours i think was the timing but this year was slightly different because we uh, because of storm arwen some of the forestry weren't we weren't allowed access so they had to route around it and uh, one of the route arounds uh, lengthened it a bit and another one they just couldn't find a good trail so they had to actually give us a, a, a car journey which took out a couple of kilometers in the race so it ended up being a little shorter result I reckon probably about four hours shorter at least oh I think I saw a photo of you actually in the in the bus or the carrier on yeah, Facebook, the car the, yeah. Go, yeah the car yeah um yeah. why why do I do the race well I first uh, did the race because um it's a funny one I've I've spent my career I suppose trying longer and longer things because I have a theory that uh, your everyone has an optimal distance and we, we have a bell curve around that where we're quite good either side of it and then it tails off 
And so I, I know that the longer I go, the better I get. So I'm, I'm looking for that peak of the bell curve. Where's my optimal distance? It's not marathon because I'm better beyond the marathon. It's not 100K because I'm better at 24 hours. It's not 24 hours because I'm better at six days. Now we have a problem because I'm now doing the, the sort of longest, hardest race in the world. And I still haven't found the downslope. And this remains the case. I still haven't found the downslope. Uh, so... I, I'm I'm just trying races that are longer and harder, uh, just to see uh, if I'm better at them. And finding, yeah, I am. I still haven't reached a point where I can say, okay, I passed my peak. I, I I should concentrate on something a little shorter. So uh, that's what I suppose one of the things that got me into it at the start. Plus, uh, I, I you know I I do a mixture of uh, flat races and you know trail mountain ultra type races as well and. Yeah, usually people specialize in one or the other, and but you have a small minority who do both, and I wanted a small minority. So I, I love the mountains. I was a mountaineer before I was a, a runner. Uh, I was a hill walker was, uh, before that. So that that's kind of my original background to an extent. So I, I come from a, a hill background, and uh, so obviously I enjoy the hills, enjoy the mountains, and really enjoy being at the challenge of being out there and looking after yourself, you know, and, uh, you know, being in the mountains isolated is great. I love it. I embrace it. So a race like the spine puts it all together and like a good long nonstop race, which has got that exposure and that level of, uh, technical difficulty to make life interesting. So that's what drew me to it. And it's tagline that it was Britain's most brutal race. And we'll we'll see about that. And they weren't wrong. It is. It's possibly the hardest race in Europe, I would say. Uh, Certainly, I've I've done a lot of the races that are, uh, you'd often see listed in the 10 hardest running races in the world or whatever. And I'd normally have ticked off three or four in any of those given lists. And I can can say with certainly the spine certainly tends to belong on those, all right. It's it's that level of difficulty. It, It can take people out of it very easily. You had success at this year's race by winning it once again. Very exciting uh, finish to the race. Now, I was following your progress on your Facebook page through the race, but you've written a blog. In fact, it's in five parts at the moment, and I expect there's probably another two more parts to come. But you left me on a cliffhanger um, because you have only gotten to the point where the leading male athlete that was an hour up the road in the distance, unavailable to be caught. You're now neck and neck together standing in the one room. Let's go, race on. And now I don't know what happened. As in, I do know what happened, but I'm at the edge of my seat wanting the rest of the blog to come through. So um, talk to me about that section of it, because we haven't heard anything about that piece yet. Obviously, anybody who follows your blogs would have already read all the stories of what's happened throughout the race. But tell me about the excitement of that moment when you realised, holy hell, we have a race on our hands now and we're already over three days into this race. Yeah, well, it was kind of the excitement was building from a, from a way back because when I started the race, and if you read my original blog of my my pre my pre race blog, I would have laid out my race favorites and what I was expecting. And normally, I go into the race, you know, to at least try and win. But I really wasn't expecting it this year because, you know, for starting getting older, I'm 53 now, which is way beyond the the, the age at which most rational people would have retired out of their athletic career. <laughs> And uh, so I um, and I can feel myself slowing in the sense that I no longer have my my top speed that I used to have when I was younger, Uh, but I can still, you know, do the endurance. So I can still go along and enjoy the race. Um, 
so the, I remember the first, in, in the start of the race, people were running out very fast and I could just feel people running away from me. And uh, I, I, one person called my position at 15 to one point and I thought, okay, yeah, that's, <laughs> that sounds about right, but it's a long way from where I'm used to being. But by the first aid station at the end of the first day, I'd work my way into the top 10 and I was happy with that, probably around sixth or seventh. And that's when it started, you know, the race started getting entertaining as a race, I think, because uh, you had two runners who were way out in front and, and one of them ended up pulling out before the, the, there's five main aid stations. And he, one of the leaders had pulled out before the, the second one. Um, he had stomach issues and he was a really one of my pre-race favorites, Kim Collison. Uh, so suddenly we were all up the place uh, without doing anything. And at the third aid station, another one of the guys in front of me ended up pulling out because he, uh, he had injured his leg. He was actually taken to hospital just for a precautionary examination. Uh, classic spine race stuff. Uh, and so again, we were all up the place. Uh, <laughs> you know. And this was happening constantly. And at, the, at, at that time, I was running quite close to uh, one or two other runners. And we were literally 24, 48 hours being able to see each other, you know, uh, and I won for about two or three hours actually running together and having keeping each other awake and having a nice conversation. But we were in visual sight and back and forth for quite a long time. So as a race, it was interesting, but we were, we were back a bit. But then the people in front, the guy, Damien Hall, who was my pre-race favorite, because he, he's one of the, he had the fastest known time for the Pennine Ray and he's done the race before and he's actually written a guidebook on the Pennine Ray. So he had everything he needed to, to win the race and break the record. But he ended up pulling out, which was probably the biggest shock to me. And he was probably a full day in front at that stage. So Diana got really interesting because that left Eugenie in front, who is, uh, he's probably done the spine race eight times. He won it the first time he did it, uh, Spanish runner. But he's been coming back ever since and, and having various failures of various kinds along the way. But he keeps coming back, keeps trying to win. So Eugenie found himself in front. He was the guy who was hours and hours and hours in front of me. And I knew he, he'd he been working on his weaknesses and I knew his, his traditional weakness was inability to navigate, but he'd learned how to read his GPS and he, he was navigating away quite happily on his own. Uh, uh, and I'd seen him that he had now, he was now able to do that. And he, his, he'd also improved his speed. Uh, so he was definitely faster than me. So I knew I couldn't catch him on speed. And uh, the only way, as I, I was saying to people, is Eugenie's in front and he can win this race. But the only person who can beat him is himself. And uh, that's what was actually starting to happen. Eugenie uh, basically didn't take enough sleep and started running himself into the ground. And so between before the, the fifth and final aid station, there's an unofficial aid station, which is this kind of uh, a farmer's uh, garage, which she has converted into a pit stop for walkers. And she comes out and greets the spine races and uh, welcomes us all in. And there's lovely couches in there. And Eugenie got there exhausted and lay down and slept for a couple of hours. And after he woke up, he just, he was still exhausted and unable to move. And that's, that's where I came in, and there he was. So, uh, a couple of hours earlier, I was—I was, I, a spectator had told me that he was slowing up ahead, and I just couldn't believe that he had slowed up enough because the gap was so much that he should have been able to take a sleep and still stay in front. But I think he, he ran himself into the ground so much that he just was gone, basically. And uh, yeah, so I found myself suddenly from a race I had no ambition to win. There I was. 
about to take the lead and I was like an excited three-year-old. I was absolutely, <laughs> I can't believe this is happening. I just can't believe it. And one of the hardest things I had to do for myself was to remind myself that we you know, are not near the finish yet. There's still a fair bit to go and I had a lot of work to do. And I had to concentrate on uh, actually keeping my speed up and building the gap on the two guys behind me and not getting complacent and remembering that everyone else who'd been in the lead at this point had also managed to <laughs> make some kind of mistake. And, you know, there's plenty of scope still left to do it, which with one of the, the, the longest, most exposed sections uh, still to come. So, uh, yeah, it made for an interesting race. And I think everyone said the dot watching this year, watching us all in the trackers was fantastic, which I imagine it was. And I could actually envisage it myself, you know, because it was a fantastic race to be in. So I enjoy the racing aspect of racing. And, uh, you know, I'd rather outrace someone than outrun them, if you know what I mean. And it was that kind of race where it was definitely a racing thing going on. How far from the finish were you when you overtook Eugenie? There's five main aid stations, so we were still about 10 or 15 kilometers short of the, the fifth aid station. So probably uh, probably the guts of a day, uh, half a day, three quarters of a day, so probably about 15 or 16 hours still to go at that point. Uh, so really anything could have happened there, you know, nutrition yeah. issues, sleep deprivation, falling, anything. hurting yourself. Yeah. Yeah. The race was was definitely not won at that point. No, uh, actually, the aid stations at CP5 were, came out to, to see me in and cheer me in. And one of the cameramen there, uh, was, I think, uh, interviewed me and he asked me, how did it feel to be in the lead, given what had happened to the previous leaders? And I said, it was like sitting in Graham North's chair, waiting for him to pull the, pull <laughs> the lever and eject me out the back. <laughs> but at the same time, it must have given you great confidence and a, and a big boost to know that, OK, yes, those other leaders or those other athletes that were ahead of you, some of them had fallen by the wayside or had to DNF for whatever reason. But it must have given your self-confidence a big boost to think like, oh, you know, this is mine to lose now. Every step yeah. forward is a step to the finish line. Just keep it calm and keep getting everything right that you can get right to get to the finish line. Yeah, and that, that was probably the best thing is that uh, I had actually been I doing I've been doing this race for the long term anyway, and that I've been running a steady race. To my aim was to finish running as well at the finish as I was at the start, and not fade off, and to make sure that I didn't get any um, sleep deprivation issues. And that was all going exceptionally well, better than any previous winter spine I'd done. So this is the payback. Then at that point, when I found myself in lead, I was in really good shape. I knew I was actually able to outrun the guys behind because I'd kept myself in good shape, even though the guys who had been in front running faster because I sort of controlled my own controllables. I was now in a great position. I knew that once I kept that control and, you know, didn't make any serious mistakes, which I hadn't done up to that point, then I should be able to finish them off. In fact, I had already overtaken the two guys behind way back uh, about halfway through the race. And uh, I had built a lead in them on, on a long descent. So I kind of had in my head, even at that descent, I knew if I could be anywhere near them for the last descent, I could outrun them to the finish. And I had that in my mind. I didn't even need to worry about them catching me. As long as I could be anywhere close to them on the last descent, I could do it. And that was a big mental plus, all right. And what sort of pace are you running, Ian? I actually haven't worked out the pace. I just, I, I, I never really worked out the the. the pace by numerics except when i'm doing something like a 24 hour run on a flat um so i'm just running sort of what i call you know i'm doing a, a perceived exertion pacing and you know so it's steady pace it's it's 
but it's probably it's probably not that much faster than a really 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 fast walk but yeah. uh, but the the effort levels are still there you know you, you know that your actual speed might not be exactly rocketing along but you know when you spread it out over uh, four or five days it's actually quite a quite a fast speed because people take a long time to walk the full length the Pennine way you know and uh, so when we do it on the uh, in the race um, with those circumstances, it is actually quite high speed in comparison. People take two weeks to do what we're doing in four days. You know? And I imagine the undulating terrain underfoot plus the ascents and the descents all make it a, a just a very difficult event to almost come back and say, well, I was running or fast walking yeah. or jogging at a particular pace. Um, I want to talk to you very briefly about the sleep deprivation, because you mentioned there that you didn't want to let the sleep deprivation cause you any issues or any hassle and, and stay on top of it so has something happened in the past with sleep deprivation that has caused you to bow out of a race or cause hassle and if so what did you do differently this time uh, to ensure that you were on top of it oh yeah sleep deprivation is definitely a part of uh, multi-day ultra running for sure and it's the probably the, the aspect of it that i dislike the most um because it is one of the most effective forms of torture literally there is is depriving people of sleep so you know we're doing it to ourselves here so uh i i've got it in many races over the years and you know the trick is to try and eliminate it as much as possible because it's very debilitating when you get it my first spine race uh i definitely pushed it that was the race where it got stopped twice because of high winds uh and myself and pavel who uh was the, the previous year's race winner pushed on through one of the aid stations and I can remember being on the Pennine Way, which I'd been really, or not the Pennine Way, on, the, on Hadrian's Wall, which I'd really been looking forward to seeing because uh, I'd never seen it before. And it's such a brilliant historic uh, thing. And uh, so I was really looking forward to it, but I could not enjoy it because I was so, so sleep deprived that I was just spending the entire time looking down off the wall at these lights and distance thinking, you know, I could go down there, find a building, have a nap. <laughs> and just constantly thinking about where the next sleep would come and at one point um uh, pavel stopped in front of me to read the map and i just walked straight into him because uh i i basically just dead on my feet asleep on my feet and sleepwalking <laughs> straight into him so yeah you can get you can get yourself into a bad state i i certainly uh even three or four years ago in the race i can remember being on the last leg and being pretty tired and uh uh, Kate Bush's song um, Army Dreamers came into my head which I hadn't actually heard in about 10 years but it was on loop in my head playing away and while that was going on I had about three different personas in my own head having a discussion about what we collectively were doing and how to do it best you know with one voice saying you know you need to hurry up the faster you get it done the, the faster you get out of here and the other voice saying oh just relax and you know <laughs> keep it comfortable you know <laughs> take it easy and then you know the third one sort of saying all sorts of nonsense so yeah you do and lots of people hallucinate on these races as well so you just never know what what could happen so uh, my trick is to try and or my ambition is to not get into that state where i can avoid it and i managed it this year i had no sleep deprivation issues on the course and I, it was it wasn't a great it wasn't a, anything i planned i just took it as it comes uh, how how was i feeling coming into each age station and trying to judge whether I should take a break. And I suppose the key call I made was on the second aid station, which is probably about 30 hours in, maybe a bit more. I decided to take an hour's nap there and not push on. And that was probably the key that 
needed to get a rest rest of the race. So each aid station from then on, no matter how I was feeling coming in, I took an hour's nap. And that uh, the idea had been to get one full sleep cycle. And the end result was I was getting through each leg between the, the aid stations without uh, without going into any kind of sleep deprivation issues. So that worked perfectly. And it's wow. never worked that well before. So I was so delighted with that. In the spine race particularly, you wouldn't like bivouac or sleep on the side of a mountain or sleep on the side of um, a path or anything. It's not that type of race, would it be? Or do. People do. People uh, do I, I, yeah, and I, I, I did once. I did, uh, uh, I think the probably the third year I did it maybe I think I had to sleep under a I took a 10 minute power nap under a, an old railway bridge once just to, for a bit of shelter and I have found myself looking at various points along the race so I'm very tired thinking well you could do that you could, you could go there and we it's mandatory gear that you have to carry a bivy bag and a sleeping bag so you are equipped to do it but I prefer not to do it because a it, it takes time and you know, be it, it's it's always a danger because uh, you know you you are exposed out there. If you start getting wet and start getting cold, it's going to be very hard to to recover from. So mm. it's not an option I want to do unless I really really have to do it. it I'd consider I personally consider it a little unsafe, so not a risk to be taken. Speaking of getting wet and getting cold, blisters. Do you get them? How do you deal with them? Do you suffer from them badly? And um, what's the worst? set of blisters you got in what race generally the i don't get them but <laughs> sometimes i do and occasionally i get them they can be pretty bad and spectacular that's for sure i was a hill walker so I, I i spent my 20s getting a lot of time on my feet you know eight or nine hours hill walking around the, the mountains in ireland so i think that that hardened up my feet a bit and uh, definitely helped so I, I rarely, if ever, would get a, a blister in a in a road race, no matter how long. And that includes six day races. So it's really only the mountains where they become a danger because, and that's because grit gets in. And uh, I I wear waterproof shoes quite a lot, not not necessarily to keep out the water, but to keep out the grit and uh, to protect the feet in that way. What about chafing, Ian? You know, if you're carrying your backpack and your bivouac and your sil- your safety blankets and things like that, you're carrying your water and your nutrition. Do you get chafing or do, how do you protect your shoulders and your back from the rubbing of wet clothes and sweat and all the rest of that? Well, good gears is certainly part of the answer to that. And I'm quite lucky that I'm sponsored by Columbia because they they, <laughs> they provide me with a lot of excellent waterproofing gear and, and base layers and so on, which are really very effective in terms of uh, you know minimizing uh, the chances with starting. And I suppose what you want to do is prevention. Not, not having to deal with it. Um, but yeah, you, you do, things go wrong, that's for sure, and you do have to do it. I, I remember even in this year's spine, uh, getting into the second aid station, and I said to one of the medics, I should have probably asked you guys to just stand on my back and walk up and down because my shoulders were so sore uh, coming in from the, the weight of the rucksack. Uh, and that was probably, I just hadn't got it adjusted quite right. Uh, you can get chafing. Again, it doesn't happen to me very often, but when you get when it happens, it's, it's pretty awful. But again, you you just try and you you know prevention is better than cure, and you you try and uh, try and learn from it, and not let it happen again. In terms of your original question on the worst blisters I ever had were actually in an adventure race. It was down, it was the World Championships down in uh, down in Australia and uh, in Tasmania, and uh, I saw I somehow managed to get some grit into my shoes on a walking leg. And it basically took most of the skin off the bottom of my feet. And one of the guys I was uh, 
because uh, it's teams of four in adventure races. And one of the guys on my team was a, a, an American um, surgeon. So he had some first aid kit with him. And uh, he gave me uh, some painkillers. And uh, a couple of hours later, I said to him, I know that I, I, I feel like I can run here, but I know I shouldn't. <laughs> The what is in those painkillers? And he just said, don't ask. Don't ask. <laughs> and did you ever and, find out? No, no, no. You wouldn't tell me. Uh, <laughs> but whatever there was, they were amazing because I really had very little skin left on the undersides of my feet. And that actually happened to me on the UTMB once as well. And uh, it was actually, I, 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 know, I know what caused it, that I was deliberately wearing shoes that were slightly too big because your feet tend to expand when you're uh, running long distances. So I started in a, a, an oversized pair of feet. And the first long descent on the UTMB is, is pretty steep near the top. And I think I just, my feet were sliding uh, and I was trying to go a bit too fast in that first descent. And I just probably moved the skin a little bit. And then the time on feet did the rest. So by by halfway, I was starting to lose most of the skin on my on the inner side of my feet again. But uh, in that case, I actually managed to put up with it and uh, got all the way to the finish, but spent three hours in the medical tent afterwards having them basically put back together again. <laughs> oh, crikey. Ugh, that's the yeah, that's the part of the racing that I wouldn't be able to deal with. But whatever about having to keep going for maybe a long time. Actually, no, I wouldn't be able to deal with any of it. But the blisters, I definitely would be too much of a wuss. And the skin coming off my feet. Oh. Yeah, it's actually quite rare. That's the thing. I, most most races, my feet are relatively fine. Your feet get used to it, basically. And uh, they toughen up. They do. I suppose it's like everything else. You toughen up to just uh, toughen up your brain, toughen up your body to just keep uh, moving forward. I know we jumped straight in to talk about the spine race and you have mentioned um, your background in kind of mountain climbing or um, enjoying mountain walking and, and all of that. But you have run a couple of marathons before you got into doing the ultra stuff, didn't you? Yeah, my first my first running race was the marathon, which was Dublin back in 1998. And um uh, yeah, I uh, I wasn't a runner at all when I was growing up because, uh, as you can probably tell, I'm probably all slow twitch muscle, and most uh, sports you do in school are high are fast twitch muscle, and uh, you know, so I was a good result in, in running in school of being second last because that meant I actually <laughs> got in front of someone. So uh, no, I was a terrible sprinter, so I was terrible at all school sports, and uh, so I didn't think I was much of a runner at all. A bunch of my hill walking friends were doing the Dublin Marathon and I decided I'd join them because uh, I'd done some mountain marathons, which are really orienteering events that, you know, you go as fast as you can, but you can walk if you want. But uh, and that was the only thing I'd really been doing training for. So the, I, I didn't do much in terms of training programs with Dublin Marathon, just went out and ran in the evenings every now and again. But in the, la- in my, the long run leading up to the first marathon, I realized I could outrun my friends and uh, I adjusted my targets a bit. Uh, did a sub three hour marathon for my first marathon and that was kind of then I knew I could run so it that I did seven marathons uh seven proper marathons as in <laughs> proper I, I think you might I think you might have some fast twitch muscles there all right a yeah. lot of people would be very happy to run a sub three hour marathon whether it was their first one or their 21st one I definitely will never run sub <laughs> three hour marathon um you mentioned training there for the Dublin marathon and just going out and, and doing a few runs but more importantly what sort of training do you do now for this long ultra multi-day stuff that you're doing it's pretty much you know the, 
in my head, it's it, I regard it as a, a longer version of a marathon training program where everything is a little bit longer and a little bit slower. But um, training is not that different no matter what dif- distance you're doing. So my long runs are very long. And so at weekends, I would do five or six hours uh, out in the hills generally. They're my long endurance runs. And during the week, generally, you know, most of my easy runs would be two to two, two and a half hours. Uh, some on roads. Uh, in the summer, more in the hills, but in winter, mostly on the roads. I always say you have to train your weaknesses. And in my case, it's obviously speed work is the weakness. So uh, I need to do more speed work and be conscious of it. So I'm aiming to be doing at least a minimum of one speed session a week, not two. But again, that'd be err on the longer side of speed sessions. There's not much point to me doing 100 meter repeats. So it'd be tend to be more like uh, kilometer repeats or something like that. Uh, or uh, my version of a tempo run would be more like uh, an hour or an hour 20 uh, running pretty fast as opposed to just a 20 minute block but it's probably having the same training effect from from an ultra running point of view but the thing is if you ask uh, no matter from top to bottom even at, at the the best in the world if you ask five ultra runners what's a good ultra running p- training plan you'll probably get about 10 answers because uh, there's no there's no right way there's uh there's plenty of right ways and uh like the likes of Camille Heron, who's you know a world record holder at 24 hour running, she never runs more than about 20 miles in training. So you know it's totally different approaches. Uh, but there's lots of approaches that work. And what about recovery? Is it like a periodized training that you would do? Do you take a recovery week, or would you take a day or two off during the week? Um, and then what do you do with regards to I suppose stretching and mobility and your core and things like that to be able to go for so long? Well, in terms of recovery, I, I usually do it on field. I, I used to require very little recovery, but as I'm getting older, I'm recording a little more, and it's definitely listening to the body and uh, and going with the flow. You certainly can't work on the rule of uh, whatever a day for every mile or something like that, because I've spent I've spent a couple of years recovering if that was the case. So I do it on field. So these days, I tend to take take a, a week of downtime for sure after the very long race, sometimes two. In terms of periodization, not not a huge amount, but I. I, I will usually make sure that I have at least uh, one month of the year that's uh, a definite down month to, to recover. And that quite often it'll find me again because I'm listening to my body. I'll know when I've just, all right, this is definitely a point where I need to just back off and uh, take a rest and regenerate and come back. It's not necessarily a classic summer winter cycle because of the spine and the start of January, I'm usually ramping up to it by that stage. So I, Quite often, it might find me through an injury or something, and it just naturally occurs. Uh, but I don't get that many injuries. So if it doesn't naturally occur, I'll usually just feel myself getting tired, uh, which is the case this year, where just uh, towards the end of last year, I knew I I was slowing down and I could feel it. So I just took two or three weeks off after the, one of my big, big long races and uh, took the recovery. But generally, uh, generally, I don't plan for it, but I know I'll be there at some stage. And do you have a coaching or are you self-coached? I'm self-coached. I am in a running club um, and there are coaches there, but uh, ultra running is pretty specialized, quite honestly. And uh, there aren't, there are very few coaches who I, I, I read a lot of coaches, but there, there are very few who I would uh, trust to, uh, to actually give me a relevant training program, to be honest. Yeah, I suppose from my own point of view, the, what, I, what I've learned is to learn to learn. Uh, and the tricky bit is to put in the discipline to get it. So say I, that 
I just said it a minute ago, the most important thing is to know, in my case, uh, what the weaknesses are and what to train and not to, you know, one of the hints is to do what you don't want to do. (laughs) Just speed work in my case. I have no problem jumping on my bike and cycling for four or five hours, but ask me to do a half an hour of a core workout and I'll be like, no. Yeah, yeah. And it's the the weakest part that has to be fixed, your core and your stability and flexibility. Yeah, and in my case, I would have uh, I would have had a good background with multi sports because of uh, being an adventure racer for so long, you know. And uh, certainly, all the kayak training was great for my core, and I could actually, I could see and feel the core strength building up as as I, I was able to put in more and more kayak training over the years, and that that was great for building core strength. But it wasn't something I deliberately set out to do. It was a side effect of having to become a better kayaker, which was my weak point in adventure racing, and the one I had to do uh, a lot of dressing to to get around uh so i don't deliberately train for it it's definitely a case of where uh do as i say not as i do because i don't do any specific strength and conditioning or core work but uh it tends to fall out i do do a lot of cycling uh and i a lot of my i spend a lot of hours a week on the bike these days a lot of it is on a turbo trainer but it's still on the bike nonetheless and do you swift or are you old school very old school. Yeah. Okay. I have a really cheap turbo trainer. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's kind of time efficiency because I, I bring out a a, lap, a, a pad and just uh, read. So okay. I can manage to do two things at once. Uh, yeah. So, but it, I do, I, I have enough discipline that I'm, I'm sweating buckets for sure. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of work going on, you know, probably, I probably pushing the, the cycling workouts a lot harder than I'm actually pushing the running workouts because I'm so efficient at the running comparison. <laughs> And I know you work as an IT analyst uh, for the RCSI. So how much of your time do you spend, not your working time, obviously, but how much of your time for your training and your racing do you spend analyzing your own data? I don't analyze. I don't collect data. It's quite simple. Uh, do you not wear a watch when you go training or a heart rate monitor? Yes, is it all I wear a watch and I wear a watch for one piece of data and that's what time Time. <laughs> That's literally it. I deliberate, and that's very deliberate, very, very deliberate, uh, because I see a lot of people who fall into the paralysis by analysis trap. And as I say, you know, what's my key feedback in races? Uh, perceived exertion. What's my key feedback in training? Perceived exertion. And it's perception. And it's learning to get that perception for me is the important thing. And the big, one of the most important tools I have is RPE. So that's how I measure it. What's a good training run? Well, you know, what's my target training run? I say, I'll go, okay, I'll go out for two, two and a half hour run. I've set routes, but I've no idea. I deliberately do not measure these routes. I just know how long in general they'll take me. So if I, I'll pick a route because it should take about this long. Um, at the end of the day, and I come in and say, well, I, re- I felt pretty sluggish on that. Then, okay, that was sluggish. I felt pretty good doing that. That was good. I don't want to look at the numbers then and say, oh, well, they might have, been able to run that a little faster no no if I, if I felt good it was good that's the way I look at it and I know how to push myself without needing numbers you know again it's the RPE and this actually works in the sense that I occasionally do an analysis post-race uh, if it's worth doing so for the likes of 24-hour race where it's broken down into lots of laps and you can get the individual lap times what I actually do an analysis on is consistency and, uh, and cross compare to other people 
So what I've discovered and what I discovered from my very first lap race was that I was able to run more consistently than other people, that my I was losing less lap times from start to finish. And uh, even at uh, one World 24 Hour Running Championships, I, I remember working out that I had by I had this, the smallest gap between my fastest lap and my slowest lap of the entire field. You know, which at world championship level is it's pretty good. So I occasionally do it as analysis and they verify that this is a good approach. Uh, but, you know, the, the only time I would use uh, look at pace or speed would be in the likes of 24 hour race where I would have a target distance uh, that I think I'm capable of and I might run the first half of it pacing fairly precisely to a target and just look at the watch occasionally to make sure that I'm roughly on schedule. But usually that goes out the window beyond halfway because it's all becomes RPE after that and uh, it doesn't really matter what the pace clock says you can do what you can do and that's that (laughs) (laughs) that's for sure the other question I want to ask you is just in relation to nutrition um, how you fuel your races and what type of food are you eating for training that's an easy answer I eat nothing Uh, for my long runs at the weekend I I deliberately uh, get up in the morning and go no breakfast I never have breakfast anyway so uh, I'm, I'm running in a, in a fasted state and, uh, uh, well, relatively speaking, and uh, doing the whole thing in fat burn. So I'm training myself to, to burn fat efficiently. So never bring anything with me on a training run these days. Uh, absolutely no need. And that's, as I say, five, six hour, seven hour runs. What about water? Uh, uh, I bring I bring water with me on training runs because I'm carrying a rucksack uh, because a lot of my races require a rucksack. So I train with the rucksack. So the water is in there as weight, actually, uh, because I need to be able to carry all the mandatory gear and racing. So I make sure that the rucksack is well weighted by having bottles of water in it, because if the weight starts causing a problem, that's easy rate to get rid of. You just empty the water and the weight's gone. Uh, <laughs> rather than an expensive heavy piece of gear which you're, you're stuck carrying or whatever so uh, and also it's easy to measure because the liter of water is one kilo so you know exactly what weight you're carrying uh, but that's really the only reason I carry water around is for weight so I think uh, in Ireland anyway uh, usually on, on an annual basis I would have two or three training runs where I need to drink and they would be the long runs which where the weather gets blue skies and sunshine and the temperature goes above 20 degrees. So it isn't that often. So yeah, it's usually two or three times a year. And it would normally be up to about four hours into one of those hot days where I might start drinking water. Now, uh, occasionally on holidays in the Canaries or whatever, if I'm doing a training run out there, then yeah, I bring bring actual liquids to uh, to drink. But that's a totally different thing <laughs> to be quite honest about it. But only in those hot conditions really do I worry about bringing water and that translates to racing then um so uh it's it's an actual tactic that I need less water and less uh food than other people and I've used that to yeah you know as I said I've run seven marathons one of the last marathons I did was a trail marathon which only had about four or five aid stations and I was leading it coming into the first aid station and uh, we were running pretty hard and fast and I deliberately accelerated through that aid station knowing that I didn't need to stop and that was you know a deliberate tactic knowing that most people would plan to stop at the aid station and, and get something and uh, so I was uh, my my tactic was you know you either stick with me I'm messing with your head you're going to miss your aid station uh, or you stop 
you, you hit your nutrition plan, but we've, I've broken the elastic band. You're no longer attached and I'm running away into the distance. So I, I use it as a weapon, uh, quite frankly, in racing. Being conscious that you, you know it's there as a weapon to deploy is quite useful as well. I've used it. I remember my first three-day race, which was a race called Across the Years in, in Phoenix and Arizona. Uh, and I was running with Joe Fages, who's probably the best American multi-day racer at the moment. And... Uh, he started tracking me because he was in front by a couple of kilometers on the third day. And so he just tucked in behind me because that way he knows he can't be overtaken. And so I just started accelerating, doing the same thing. You know, if he's going to give me control of the pace, I'm going to try and break him by, you know, running so fast and not stopping at the aid stations. Now, it didn't work. It didn't break him. We had a lot of fun racing it. But it just shows you can deploy these things as a weapon. You know, you have to. I've actually won 24-hour races without eating anything at them anything at all not a single thing so uh, you know <laughs> it's you know you can go a long way without needing to eat uh i can remember my first six-day race the the organizers was waiting for me to explode uh because i was eating so little and really i only started eating when i was 50 miles ahead of the guy behind me because i knew i could i knew i could then without putting uh uh the race in danger so i kind of just relaxed but yeah, you can go a long, long, long way without food because you're burning fat and you've got days and days and days of, you got oh, I, I have years. I actually have years. Yeah. Yeah. But it's proven, you know, there was a guy, uh, there was a guy who got stuck in his car in the big snow a couple of years back in Sweden and he got trapped in a snowstorm for two months. Now, he went two months without food and survived. Now he had, he obviously had water from the snow. But that just shows how long you can go without food because, you know, your metabolism is still burning away the energy. <laughs> so when you finish your training run or you finish a race, then what do you do to replenish all the calories that you've burned and the fat that you've burned and to replenish your body so your muscles can start to repair themselves? In, in terms of training, uh, nothing, nothing special, you know, just just carry on eating normally. Uh, in terms of racing, uh, I, I actually have to watch myself not to overeat because <laughs> you know, it's nice to, to burn also with an excess fat, which is always there. And uh, But the body always tries to equalize back. And if you don't watch yourself, you can end up uh, <laughs> heavier than when you started within a week or two, which is exactly what happened after this year's finest that happens. Uh, <laughs> so I'm back where I started. And there, there was no working on that. It was that. I was actually trying working not to get that, but it happened anyway. You don't need to work stress it, that's for sure. And you certainly don't need to go around stuffing yourself. <laughs> what would be your go-to meal then? So after the spine, were you craving any particular foods or did you have it in your head that you wanted like a big juicy burger or a, a Sunday dinner roast or a vegetarian pasta or what was it? Uh, it tends to be real food that you, you crave. It's whatever you don't have and whatever you can't get. It's usually what well, you Well, if you haven't eaten for three days, that's everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have the food there. You know, it's part of their managing year and it's fine, but you have to have, I think, 3,000 calories or so leaving some of the aid stations. So I'd, I'd have food with me and just not eating as, mu as much. Now, I, I do eat a bit on the spine, but it's quite often for reward as opposed to necessity, where I'd promise myself that if I can get to here, then you can have a little bit of chocolate as a reward for that. And I make my own uh, homemade uh, flapjacks and things like that, just uh, which are pretty healthy and full of full of calories in case I need them. And uh, but yeah, I've no no particular go to meals. I just uh, try and eat relatively healthily. I suppose is the thing. So uh, post race treats can be things like going for a good steak or something like that. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. You never know. You get you definitely. It's something that definitely will pop into your head if you're running. That's for sure. In the long, particularly in the long race, you'll start fantasizing about something. Quite often, it's things like fish and chips, or yeah, a steak, or something a curry. Tasty, yeah, something tasty. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned there when you were racing in um, Phoenix, Arizona, about the tactics and about uh, going through the aid station with the other gentlemen as well, the other athletes you were racing. In the type of racing that you're doing. How much of the race success comes down to strategic racing and tactics as opposed to speed and endurance? Like how much of it is the mental toughness, the mental resilience, but also the capacity to make those tactical moves and decisions on the fly when you're maybe sleep deprived, but you're definitely tired after three, four, five, six, seven days on the go? I think there's no doubt about it. In general, the longer a race is, the more important that becomes. Uh, because, you know, you look at 100-meter sprints to take it down to the other end, it really is just a matter of, you know, <laughs> go as fast as you can. Tactics don't really come into it because there's no room for tactics. Just burst out of blocks and go for it. And the longer the race become, the more important and the more the more likely it is that the race will become tactical. So, you know, as you, as you go out to 5,000 meters, you start to see those interesting tactical races where... Uh, you know, the likes of Mo Farah, who may not be the fastest runner in the world, was definitely the best racer in the world. And you start to see the tactics come in. So that definitely projects out into ultras where it's getting longer and longer. So tactics become more and more important. And, you know, thinking things through uh, becomes more important. And if nothing else, it's the capacity for to get it wrong. <laughs> as much as anything else uh in that if you get if you get your tactics wrong it'll take you it can take you right out of the race and it might not be immediately but it will it will find you so it's you know you, you've got a lot of plates spinning in the air and you get one of them wrong it'll take you down so there's a lot of plates spinning to be managed and therefore there's a lot of um a lot of tactical work to be done it you know it still is not necessarily going to win you any races because when push comes to the shove you know natural ability uh once once you have the tactics will will beat <laughs> will beat anyone else you know the top ultras in, in the world are, are still the guys with the, with the best natural ability they just also have the hard work and they also have uh the the tactical nuance to, to get it all right you know I want to switch gears very quickly because I am conscious that we're nearly an hour into the episode and I haven't even gotten to like lots of the juicy questions that I wanted to ask you, but I'm going to switch gears slightly and move across to the Barclay Marathon because you were the first Irish man to be invited to the Barclay Marathon, um, which is one of the craziest, toughest races in the world. There's been something like, is it 18 finishers over the history of the whole event or something? Um, I think 15 finishers. One or two have finished multiple times. So that's where possibly where you're getting 18. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you went to that race with great intentions and fell and fractured your collarbone. Yeah. Yeah. Just one of those just classic Barkley thing. There were, <laughs> there's so many ways the races will destroy you. It's a, it's an interesting race because you, you line up with a lucky 30 or 40 people who managed to convince Laz, the race organizer, to let them take part in the race out of thousands of applicants that, that managed to figure out how to apply every year, out of hundreds of thousands who probably want to apply every year. Uh, so you're very lucky to find yourself on the start line. Uh, so usually you're there with absolute 
uh, the best of the best from all kinds of interesting backgrounds. And uh, the one thing you all have in common is the race is absolutely beating you all up and you have to work together to try and survive. It's <laughs> it's an interesting dynamic that way and that, you know, all these people are used to excelling and winning are really battling hard to, to keep your head above water, basically. So, uh, yeah, it's, and in terms of the toughness, it absolutely is the toughest race I've ever done. It's uh, one of the... One of the uh, one of the old guys has a great saying for it. He says, you need every tool in the toolbox. If you're missing missing one of the tools, you're done. And, you know, every single skill for uh, for ultra running from, from speed, being able to handle the mountains, being confident, being out there on your own, uh, being able to, to navigate uh, competently uh, without any uh, aid beyond a map and compass. Um, Looking after yourself, it's, it's all, plus you know it's it's all there and it's all required and and being able to pace yourself, being able to deal with sleep deprivation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, the, the year I did it and the year before, actually, the fastest guy there didn't even get a single lap done because he was missing key points the two the, from the toolbox. A guy called Mike Wardian, who you know is a hundred k podium finisher in the World Championships, uh, he's got the record for seven marathons and seven continents in seven days and things, lots of things like this that I'm all under well under three hours. But yeah, to Barkley, he's not even got a single lap finished in two two attempts because. It's far more than speed and running abilities. Everything is required. So it's a, it's a fascinating race. So <laughs> yeah, breaking a collarbone in the middle of it isn't ideal to say the least. But it's again, you're out there and you're responsible for yourself. So uh, kind of ju- you just get on with it, basically. <laughs> I know what the attraction is for you for the spine race, but what is the attraction for the Barkley race? Because from what you're telling me there, it's a case of basic survival. Uh, and that's it. I mean, it is. Laz, the organizer, sets it up to be just on the edge of what's humanly possible, so that every time someone finishes it, he makes it a bit harder because clearly it's become humanly possible. So he always adds an extra hill or whatever to to push it out again. So if you if you miss the year and someone finishes, you're going, oh no, <laughs> it's going to be harder when I come back, or if I can make it back in. Uh, so it's it's the challenge. It's absolutely the challenge, and it's it's one of the classic races in the world, as far as I'm concerned. And if you ask me what the hardest running race in the world, I'd be without hesitation. I'd say the Barkley. You know, it's it is well set up to be the hardest, uh, you know, just at the edge of what's humanly possible. And you can see it from the people who who just about, the people who are failing and the people who just about manage to do it, they are. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Do you think, will you get an invitation to go back or have you been invited to go back or is it on the go back bucket list? It's hugely on the go back bucket list, but it's easier said than done. So I'll keep, I'll keep banging on the door and uh, hopefully I'll get let back in at some stage. <laughs> 32 kilometer loop and you must complete it five times. That's the, the well, game, it's basically. called the Barkley Marathons because Laz originally set it up that it'd be roughly a marathon for each loop, but it's unmeasured and nobody's carrying any tracking gear. And as I say, every year, Every time somebody finishes Lazard on the bit, but he still says it's it's a Samaritan. So it's clearly okay. It's just hard. Nobody really knows how uh, how long it is. People take estimates, but uh, yeah, it's it's hard to know. But it's 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 getting harder. The hardest bit is actually not the distance. At what point did you injure yourself? Because you completed two of the loops, didn't you? I can. Well, I officially completed one. Uh, okay. uh, we, we did complete the second one, but we were way over time. 
uh, there was a bunch of five of us came in together actually you have to collect books along the way you have to pull a page out of the books and so there was 13 books the, the year I did it and so it was on the second book the second lap that I broke my collarbone so I, I carried on for the the rest of that lap which was basically by far the majority of it with the broken collarbone so uh, <laughs> ow yeah it was pretty ow and uh, because it's Barkley uh, there's a lot of slipping and sliding, so I was trying to fall on the, the the good side, but of course you have no real control over it. So there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of falls where uh, there was a lot of interesting words learned by the people around me. I would say who hadn't heard Irish cursing on that scale before. <laughs> In May 2017, you just set off on a little adventure to run the length of Ireland from Mizzen to Malinhead. You held the record of three days, three hours and 47 minutes for a long time until that was broken last year. Yeah, just during the summer, Ed McGorty broke it. He took an hour off it. Uh, and Ed's one of the the, the, the great up-and-coming Irish ultra runners at the moment. He, he also broke my Irish 24-hour running record and then pushed it out even further. So he's he's doing great. But as he says himself, he had the advantage that he was following me and in my time to target. And uh, if it had been the other way around, it would probably work out the other way around as well. Well, that would be mad. But that, that's just the way it is. But it's such a hard thing to take on that it's not something you can come back the following week and say, OK, I'll go again and try and beat it. <laughs> like, I'm not sure I'd even be able to cycle the 555 kilometres in three days, three hours and 47 minutes. Never mind, try and run it. Most cyclists don't, funnily enough, yeah. So how? How, how did you do it? Or how did Ed do it? Uh, I, for me, it felt like the culmination of my running career to that point, again, pulling it all together. You know, uh, running running multi-days at that speed is pretty hard work. You've just got to get it all right in a tip-top condition. Uh, one of the keys in my case was actually Google Maps that, you know, the mapping has an, and the routing has improved over the years. So uh, I, I actually used a lot of software to try and figure out the optimal route and Google Maps found the best route, which no one had done before, which gave a lovely route over some of the real back roads in Cork with grass growing down the middle, uh, which is why nobody had found them before. But it turned out it probably knocked about 20 kilometers maybe off the route and certainly was a, a little easier to run and far more scenic so that helped but yeah it's really hard work and it's not easy to do and it's an awful lot have to get right because I only slept for about two or three hours and one probably the main reason Ed managed to beat me is because he knocked an hour he did an hour less sleeping uh and that was the key or two hours less sleeping I think that's that was the key to him beating me and yeah it's hard it's hard no one no one had done it with that little sleep beforehand I don't think and uh it, it's hard to keep the steady pace consistently going. It takes a lot of hard work, but it, at the same time, it's extremely enjoyable. And it, was a great, it was a great way to see parts of the country I'd never seen before. And I did have a great time and I have to say, loved the whole thing. And I had a really great support crew helping me, which, you know, it makes a big difference in something like that. And it was my adventure racing teammates. Uh, my, 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 my current team were out as my support crew and they're fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Taryn McCoy and Richard Noonan and Fimba McGurn came along for a while and uh, yeah we we that's my my core adventure racing team we we actually managed to come third in the European adventure racing championships when it was held in Ireland and that was definitely the highlight of my adventure racing career so to have them involved in the uh, Mizzen to Malin was absolutely perfect because you know they know you so well because we've raced multi-day races together and and been 
you know, under stress for five, six days together so that they know all the strengths, the weakness and what needs to be done. It doesn't even, even need to be communicated. And it goes both ways. You know, any any problems are dealt with just, they just are. You know, you don't need to worry about it. <laughs> uh, you mentioned um, the highlight of your adventure running career, but what about the highlight of your ultra racing career? What has been the highlight so far? Oh, it's very hard to call. I, I would have said Malentum isn't possibly, but there, there's so many candidates uh, because... They're all different. They're all great in different ways. Um, things like I managed to, you know, breaking the Irish 24-hour record for the first time was big for me. Uh, uh, breaking the Irish six-day running record was, was another big one. And win, winning my first six-day race, uh, winning my first 24-hour race. Yeah, they, they, they were all big. Then I managed to get a really lucky break and actually come fourth in the European Championships in 24 running, which is, a, I think, the closest any Irish male has come to meddling. And it was it was just short of getting on the podium. And that, that was a definite highlight and a big effort to get there. And that's just that's just the flat running. And then there's the likes of, uh, I've been on my age group podium in the UTMB and the UTMB is without doubt the most competitive ultra trail race in the world. And I've got a top 20 finish there, which is pretty good. But yeah, age group podium is... It was really, really nice there. And then winning the UTMB O-Man was, was pretty special as well because, you know, Irish people have no right to be winning a desert, <laughs> you know, Arabian desert race. So that was a really tough technical race. And it was great to, to win it, you know. Winning, even this year's spine win was pretty special because, you know, at age 53 to go out and win a, a kind of the most competitive spine race there ever was, uh, that, that's, from my point of view, that's pretty amazing. So there's lots of candidates and I find it hard to pick them apart, to be quite honest. Uh, and yeah. I suppose what I want to do is just try and keep the keep it rolling for as long as I can because it's, it's getting ridiculous at this stage. I'm still managed to pull things out here and there. <laughs> well, you know, it's great. And uh, you've done so much for the sport in representing Ireland at home, but also representing Ireland abroad. And, you know, the fan base definitely um, who are trying to follow in your footsteps or at least be inspired by what you have achieved. Some of those highlights would lead me to my next question to ask you to define success. Like what is success for you now in sport? Is it winning an age group? Is it winning a race outright? Is it getting to the finish line of your next race? Or what for you defines success? It 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 it, it depends. Uh, I mean, the most important thing is uh, to be still enjoying it. You know, that, that's number one. And I suppose looking towards the future, that's my main my main plan. I mean, I'm I'm gonna gonna lose the ability to win races outright, but I will try and stay competitive in any age groups before. So I'm adjusting that, and I've already had to make that adjustment for shorter stuff uh, like the the Irish mountain running uh, races and so on, where it's it's shorter. I used to be able to win leagues in those. I'm, I'm lucky to win my age groups these days. Uh, so, but. I still love the atmosphere of going out and meeting everyone and just having the fun out there. And, you know, that's what I want to hang on to and keep. Uh, so I suppose that's the, the, as close as I get to defining success. And uh, the ultimate success is to that I never stop. You know, that that I, I, I go right to my deathbed. I'm still the, you know, out, out that, that day I've been out running or cycling or something or whatever it is, you know. And before I finish up, what's next? Uh, next is uh, a last one standing race uh, up in Northern Ireland, which I think is uh, an Anglo-Celtic uh, championship race. 
and uh, that's um, last one standing. Another one of Laz's evil genius formats. Uh, I, I can remember before I even did one uh, a discussion on an Irish uh, website on boards that I in their athletics forum. There, there was a discussion on what's hardest race in Ireland, and I, I was reckoning it had to be a last one standing because uh, even though I hadn't did it, I realised how hard the format was because you just don't know when you're standing in the start line what it's going to take to win the thing. Uh, because it all depends on who you're racing against. It's such a simple concept that you run uh, at just over four mile lap. It's it's uh, one twenty fourth of a hundred miles. So when you run twenty four of them, you run a hundred miles. And you know you start each lap on the hour, every hour, and uh, you just keep running that until there's no one left to beat. And <laughs> so you don't know when people when your opposition are going to drop out. Uh, and we did we did have Keith Russell on the the show as yeah. well there last year. So it'll be interesting to see will will Keith be back to do that uh, this year. There could be a great battle. Yeah, <laughs> I I somehow think that Keith will win that one. Uh, he <laughs> certainly seems that too good. My problem in in these races is actually the sleep one. Look, I could probably run forever. Sleep deprivation is what gets me there. So it's back to that old enemy once again. That's what's dragging me back again is to see can I have a better crack at, at somehow managing that because it's really hard to do because, you know, in, in the multi-day races, like six days or three days or whatever, you have control over your own sleep, whereas in the last one standing, you don't because it's that relentless having to start every hour on the hour or whatever. Uh, it makes it really, really difficult format. It's mm. it's as again, I say it's evil genius and lads. <laughs> Um, before we go, I did ask some of our audience for questions and they were very bold because they didn't send me any questions, but we did get some lovely comments in. So Abigail Colloran says, woohoo, I've been hoping for this for a long time. Can't wait to listen to it, Joanne. Amy Baker says, nice one on this podcast. Ian is a legend in our parts. Karen Lewis says, looking forward to this one, Try Talking Sport. Ian is an incredible athlete. And then uh, Porik Murray, who I'm sure you know from Mayo, says, uh, top adventurer. The final question I want to ask you is, who or what has been your biggest inspiration to go and chase your dreams and passion in ultra endurance racing? The people who've been there before me. Um, I, what I like saying I'm doing is I'm running in the footsteps of legends. So it's those legends whose footsteps I'm running in are the ones who inspire me. Um, and and that's uh, across multiple levels. You know, at a world level, it's the likes of uh, Janos Kouros, who's the greatest ultra runner of all time. And you know, when I've gone and run the Spartathlon, I know I'm running in Janos. That's the race that the, that made Janos. And you know, that I hit not only not only ancient Greek legend uh, whose footsteps I'm running, I'm also running in his footsteps and so many other great ultra runners since. And even on a local level, the likes of. Uh, Tony Mangan, who's a few years older than me and was, you know, an early pioneer. One of the, the, the pioneers who was still running when I was starting. And, you know, I, I he taught me a lot about the ethics of ultra running. And, you know, it, he, he's been a great guy to, to watch what he's doing. And he's done some spectacular things over the years. And he's, he's still out there making his way around the world for his third lap at this stage. So, you know, and Richard Donovan and people like that and in the Irish scene who who, you know, they're pioneering their way around doing some pretty interesting stuff. And I'm, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, I'm following in their footsteps and they're keeping me on my toes, especially, as I say, those guys who are a little bit older than me and haven't stopped, they're, they're the ones who are inspirational to me. Lovely. Well, thank you so much, Ian, for joining us on the podcast today. If people want to read your blog and stay in touch with you, how can they do that? 
Ian Keith athlete page on Facebook, and uh, that's probably the best way because that's where if I'm doing races, uh, Richard uh, will will step in and do some live coverage on that. And uh, any blogs that go out, I link that from there as well. My my blog is uh, uh, wordpress.com but uh, the Facebook page is the, the best one. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm looking forward to watching you and uh, following the tracker and following the information that they'll share for the last uh, one standing in two weeks time. Uh, so the very best of luck and thank you so much. I look forward to seeing what other adventures and expeditions you end up on around the world in the coming weeks, months and indeed years. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. You can get in touch with any feedback or guest suggestions by emailing me on trytalkingsport at gmail.com. You can follow all of our activities and podcasts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and on Instagram. Pop by, say hi, let me know what you think of the show. If you are new to Try Talking Sport, please do check out some of our previous episodes. You will be both impressed and inspired by our amazing guests. Finally, be sure to sign up to our new e-zine featuring articles of interest, some great discounts and of course the inside track on supporting your triathlon and endurance sport journey wherever it may take you. Sign up on www.trytalkysport.com. It takes 30 seconds and I promise I won't bombard your inbox with emails, just the important stuff. Until next time, stay safe, keep smiling and remember to look for fun and adventure in every day. Hold up. 